We really shouldn't be out here. Well, it's the only way to make our point. Shall we? Why not? Incredible stupidity. The risk to both of you. No, that much of a risk. Computer gave us a 98% chance. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the IMMP podcast, the Intermillennium Media Project, where you can get your dose of nostalgia, media criticism, and misuse of parental authority. My name is Matthew Porter. I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad. He's my son, and I have once again made him watch television. We're back to TV. We're off of our movie binge and into the serialized narrative, or kind of. Kind of. Kind of. We are returning to a pool that we've visited in the past in terms of creator and artistic style. That's right. We are back to Jerry Anderson. Yes, models and miniatures. But live action, not just models and miniatures. I know. It's got a mix here, but it's got that tactility. It's got that physical, built-by-people kind of, not-by-committee, one-on-one design aesthetic stuff. I'm excited. (laughs) So we're talking about a Jerry Anderson TV show from a distant time and about a distant time. There's almost as much time between... I guess there's more. There's more time between when this was made. Uh, I'm getting... No, 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 no. A little bit less. We're, We're about 20 years off. Of when it takes place. Right. And they released it about 24 years before. Right. So we've got a tiny bit of time before it is farther away from us than it was when they released it to them. Which just kind of messes with me, though. <laughs> if you haven't figured it out yet, we are talking about Space 1999. Ship drop into funk music right now. Oh, like that, that opening! That is the best. That funk explosion when the uh, the eagle crashes. <laughs> it, it truly is a funk explosion. It's like here's the here's the uh, the the gentle sounds of the theremin you expect for a sci-fi show. Like yes, that was awesome. And then it slides back into theremin music again, only to do it to you a second time. Jerry Anderson likes explosions. And I, sh- I keep saying Jerry Anderson. That's not really fair. I believe uh, Jerry Anderson was exec producer on this, but Sylvia Anderson was producer. So she really had the day-to-day input on what this show was like from design and scripts and everything. So yeah, Jerry and Sylvia Anderson both really liked explosions in their opening title sequences. And they make the best use of them in Space 1999. Yeah, that's a, it, it, they're, they're not just throwing explosions willy-nilly. These are timed explosions. These are, are explosions as drums solo. Yes. In, in a yes. way, if you're thinking of it musically again. There, there is a, a, I'm using this to set a pace. I'm using this to bring a beat to this thing or emphasize a point. So I will use an explosion because I also know you'll look at that. And, 
I appreciate that portion. And Hollywood musicals notwithstanding, you really didn't see that kind of editing of visuals with music in the same way until music videos became a thing. Yeah. That that's a good point. There's there's a there's a change in the way things like this would have been filmed post music video because music videos so affected how pop culture was relating synchronization between audio and video in that sense. Yes, I think we've just agreed that uh, Sylvia and Jerry Anderson invented MTV. Oh, goodness, you're right. Pretty much. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Well, I guess that's all we have to say. There's, there's not yeah, much you can much, talk yeah, there. No, yeah. But no, um, <laughs> yeah, we could talk about explosions and music all night, but there is so much more to Space 1999. Good and bad. Good and... I... Is bad too strong a word? Oh, this is tricky, because, I mean, there's... the. the uh, we don't talk about every show here, and that's a point of it. We we talk about specific shows. We go through things that had an impact on you, and certain things had huge impact on you. And we 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 go with we go and talk about the ones that we're looking at this time. But right, and and there's one that I have cho- decided we do not talk about on this show, partly because it is the TV show that I watched more than any other when I was growing up. And that's the thing, because this came out right in between the the first one of those. And the one where the British guy plays the French guy. This is right smack dab in the middle time frame wise. But to me, it just makes me think of the one from even later in that, which is the story of a bunch of people who, instead of getting to tour around to wherever they want, have to deal with going in a vaguely straight line towards either where they're wanting to go or where they're not sure they wanted to go in this case. And kind of just having to deal with what they're coming across as they go there. Both of them are supposed to be stories about a bunch of people struggling to get where they're going with reducing resources and uncertain mechanics and things that weren't designed to last as long as they are. And both of them then fall into the same pitfalls in terms of not living up to what I wanted their stories to be. Being completely fine and interesting, but yeah, it's just not quite. Ah, this isn't the one. That, and I'm also not. I'm not talking about the one where everyone's um, in an old west fort in the stars. I'm talking about the one where uh, half the half the people on the ship aren't originally from that ship. Okay. Well, I, I suppose I can see the um, comparison between Space 1999 and that edition of the show that we don't talk about but there's one crucial difference in that in that edition of the show that we don't talk about they they did have have engines they were able to steer they had some control they had some control that's the thing they don't have control at all in space 1999 because space 1999 stole the moon yeah that's that's pretty uh pretty much it i think we should provide the setup and the setup is what we see in the pilot. Uh, uh, pi- ironically, the pilot. There's no pilot because <laughs> you can't steer the moon. Oh, the boy. moon in 1999, uh, just over 20 years after the series was uh, uh, was made, it has a a manned moon base or a peopled moon base with between three and four hundred people uh, on its uh, its crew and its staff, and. I am not entirely sure 
all of the reasons why the moon base is there. They're doing some science, apparently. They're doing, they're, they're serving as the, the way station or launch point for a manned space expedition to some other planet that's like passing through the solar system. And so presumably they're prepared to be the, the launching point or the way station for other crewed spaceflight expeditions. But their main function seems to be to manage a landfill that we don't want on Earth. Yeah, this is kind of like if uh, the entire UN decided that instead of dealing with their nuclear waste by like actually choosing a country that will deal with it, they decided that there was some third international airport that had enough extra runway outside, they could just start filling in underneath it. <laughs> because this is both like, yeah, it's both like way station that there's a bunch of refueling and there's a bunch of mechanics there to fix stuff. And it is airporty in that sense, in a weird way. Right. It's always lots of coming and going. And the the function of the of the moon base wasn't really about the people who are there all the time. They were just there to facilitate everything else. And and more so than things that are designed to to be a ship, the main like HQ room is very air traffic controllery in terms of its panels along the side with the stuff, but also in terms of its like big map chart tables at times and it's a little bit more of a like round table discussion-y format in terms of building space. It's actual like physical location feels more like that kind of tower control, look in all the directions and talk to the people. Yeah. It's very, it's all very administrative with a slight engineering bent. Yeah. And, um, and so uh, this means that sometime in, I guess in the early 1990s, some people on earth decided that we have all this really, really dangerous nuclear waste. So the, best thing for us to do with it is to put it on top of explosive chemical rockets and blast it out of the atmosphere at high speed, intending for it to end up on the moon where we can safely put it in holes in the, uh, the moon's surface. Because what possibly could go wrong in, uh, in blasting nuclear waste into space on the top of chemical rockets? Yeah. I, th there's, a, there's, a, there's like an extra step in there. If you're already taking the risk of Let's put the stuff we desperately don't want to explode on top of the explosions. Why then slow it down to put it in the rock? Oh, just just send it out and have it keep going. There's That's an a option good point. there. Like, if you're already <laughs> doing this, why do storage? Just, I mean, it turns us into intergalactic litterers, which I think would, in the context of this story, probably get us attacked by something bigger and more powerful for that reason. But in terms of the base, like, what are you thinking? Why did we store it on the moon if you're already getting it up there? And especially if we're, we're actually using the moon for other things, that's a great idea. I mean, once you've got it out of Earth's gravity well, just have it keep going, send it to Martian orbit, have it crash into Phobos. Who cares about Phobos? <laughs> what have they done for us? And, uh, and we, yeah, why put it on, on our moon? I'm sorry, you might have just given us another shirt design. <laughs> Who cares about Phobos? Who cares about Phobos? <laughs> but, yeah, uh, I mean, there is definitely something for the fact that there's plenty of scientists on this uh, moon base alpha, or, you know, international space port alpha. I don't know, yeah. like, I want to give it a, 
I want to give it like an LAX or a DIA kind of acronym name there with its airport nature. But there's definitely scientists there doing research because they have this... If you're a person studying the effects of nuclear radiation, you wind up working where the nuclear radiation is. So there's some people there doing good work or at least scientifically interesting work with the fact that we've put it there. But we've put it there. And that is, that is also what kind of messes up everyone's day because there is some sort of electromagnetic issue like an electromagnetic resonance between the the stored things that is coming that is also being heralded by like space madness in their in their people and that kind of gets glossed over later the whole space madness thing kind of like ends once they well once the nuclear uh, material explodes and becomes a rocket to throw the moon out of earth orbit Everyone is either not going mad for that reason, maybe other reasons, or no one's caring anymore. Right. I mean, it does start with kind of an interesting mystery. Why are certain astronauts succumbing to this space madness? And is it isn't about this planet Meta that they have apparently orbited with a manned uh, flight already. Then they find out that it's something about where they ha- they happen to use the oldest of the nuclear waste dumps on the moon as a landmark for turning on certain routes and it's all the astronauts who do that get close enough to the old dump it's it's actually this very clever mystery but it's like if you're if it's an if you if you say that it's the equivalent of a of a house medical mystery you get partway through, you get the symptoms, you make the connection. Oh, here's the connection. Here's what these people had in common. Then the hospital explodes. <laughs> and we don't really care about what happened to those two patients anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. The beginning of this falls in line with a, a subset of things I love, which is a a set of movies and games which I always just summarize as something's gone wrong on the space station. <laughs> That's a pretty big genre. But it's yeah. a pretty big genre, but there's this style of that, you know, isolation, that, like, that tense, close nervousness, and there's just a bunch of things that can go wrong, and it's usually a, a, a small band of, of characters. In this case, it's a much bigger group, yeah. but it still has some of that flavor. And then, yes, the moon blows up and that all gets wiped away this is a show that very much takes a sharp turn which would be completely unexpected if it's premise in all of the listings and such and if you've seen the opening and such it gives it away in there although i believe in that first episode they don't play the opening until the end i think that's correct yeah the first one which was kind of a more tv movie-ish more pilot-ish they didn't have the uh, the really tightly edited intro for that one. But yeah, I mean, that setup, though, is interesting because it's they don't tackle this directly, but it also means there's not an Earth for them to go back to. They've taken the moon. That means that, you know, coastal cities are destroyed by tidal changes. That means that weather patterns across the entire surface of the Earth are gone. That means that uh, creatures and other things that rely on the moon and its gravitational changes as it rotates around the planet are having trouble. That means we've lost our primary asteroid shield. Uh, anything remaining on Earth for these people to come back to 
is going to be a wreck. It's going to be an absolute mess. The show about the people back on Earth who watch as the moon lights up like the sun for a moment and then is not there. That is a whole other show. A whole other really cool show. That's the one you want to see, huh? It's almost the it's almost one of the shows I want to see, but it is it means that the people on Alpha are the only hope in a way that they never tackle, and this is the first of the they never tackle. Well, they do address what happened back on Earth. The last transmissions that the people on Alpha received from Earth, I don't know, because apparently they get too far away for radio waves to travel really, really soon or something. But, like, the last transmissions they're receiving from Earth are news broadcasts about the devastation on Earth and the earthquakes and the floods and the the tidal waves and the horrible weather and, and the, the, the billions dead. So yeah, they, they at least they acknowledge this was not good for Earth either. They acknowledge it, but they don't have the characters. I mean, the characters on the station have a lot of more pressing at the moment problems in the episode where they talk about it. That's true. By the time we come back to them in later episodes, they've somehow calmed down and moved on from that too much. Which means that somewhere in the middle between the first episode where they mention it and the later episodes, everyone gets over the fact that they've just messed up the Earth. And I kind of wanted to see them handle that as one of the psychological things they must deal with. Yeah, that's that's a good point. They, they move very quickly to, uh, well, okay, well, that happened. I guess we live here in deep space now with nothing but our moon base and its nuclear reactors to uh, keep us from dying in the icy cold void. Oh, you want to talk about them moving quickly? I've got some things we can discuss, but let's move into the next episodes first. Before we move on to uh, to the next episode, I just want to point out, and I know this is something you have a lot to uh, to discuss about, this is not a show that really either knew or cared a whole lot about math or geometry or physics or anything else, because in case we weren't clear in our description, this... Nuclear waste dump on the moon is on the, the far side of the moon. And it ignites in this nuclear electromagnetic chain reaction and works as a giant rocket engine to shove the moon out of Earth orbit. Now, I don't expect it to be lined up perfectly, but the far side of the moon is always facing away from Earth. So it would be more, would have been more likely to deorbit the moon and cause it to crash into Earth rather than send it off on its way into interplanetary and eventually interstellar space. But never mind that. We want the moon to be in deep space, so that's what happens. Yeah, that is one of the things. Like, You can make a case for the fact that, like, well, they were saying one of the segments went off first, which means it would not be centered to this. It would be offset. And if it went off first, it could rotate the entire moon and then fire it. But that requires it to have a level of control that seems unreasonable for the unrestrained chain reaction. I would put a little spin on there, like a knuckleball. Yeah, like, I, I have I have played Gary's Mod before. You put one rocket on and fire it early, <laughs> the entire thing will flip over before all the other ones fired into the ground at that point. Yeah, I suppose that could be it. Nothing I, saying it's perfectly centered. You can explain it like that, but at the same time... This is a show where the science, air quotes, is not 
to actually talk about the scientific possibility. The scientists and the science of it all is to give us a a baseline set of characters that can then talk about the the psychological, sociological, theological implications of what they're dealing with. This is a science this is a soft sciences show that likes to candy coat its soft sciences in hard science terminology to get them in there. Yeah, this is a hippie show disguised as a science show. Exactly. And I very much love the 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 soft sciences, the psychology, the 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 nature of how people would respond. I love that. But it does bug me when they mess up their hard science in that sense. I don't know that they had a lot of science behind their soft science either, but they just loved to talk about it. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm giving them credit there in ways they might not always have. But, yeah, their their hard science is, is rough. There's plenty of instances where suddenly there's there's waves in space. And we're not like radio waves. I'm only like... They're talking about sounds. They're talking about sonic frequencies in space. It's like... Yeah, they're asking people on their, their spaceships, because the, the moon base had this fleet of, of Eagle spaceships, which were awesome, and we can talk more about those. But apparently they're equipped with sonar. Well, we're not getting anything on visual, not getting anything on radar. Try sonar. I think I can predict what you're going <laughs> to get on sonar in space. But they try it anyway, and they're shocked. No, nothing on sonar either. This entire show has that bright, curvilinear, but, like, panel construction that Jerry Anderson does so well. And everything's very bright white. Everything's very bright white or brightly colored. You're either in a bright white room or there's, like, a bright orange panel that you're interacting with. Or your chairs are this, like, rich red that you're sitting in with these padded seats and such. In the the cargo ship that got turned into the other into like a looks more passenger liner. Oh, that's outside. right. Yeah, there is there's a lot of color and such, but for some reason that also means that I'm just imagining like this little Fisher Price toy with the squeaky buttons for the sonar because it's going to be about as effective. <laughs> <laughs> nope, beep, nothing, beep. Captain. Nope, <laughs> Commander. There's nothing on the sonar. Meanwhile, meanwhile, our commander, if the uh, opening is anything to go by, is just looking very, very dour in an Apple store. Because, <laughs> I mean, the opening has him just, like, with his arms crossed looking stern. And there's this bright white background. And then we cut, uh, then it's um, over to Barbara Bean, who is there in, like, a dark closet turning slowly. <laughs> That's her counterpart moment in the opening. And it's it's just weird. Because you know, the primary characters in this are now. This is going to be a little hard to follow, so so stay with me here. You've got the commander played by Martin Landau, and he's kind of the smart and in command, but often driven by passion kind of character. You've got the doctor, and you've got the science officer. And these three are the main characters in your science fiction TV show about people traveling through the galaxy. Oh, and if you're if you're ever uncertain about where any of the characters that don't get a prominent role are in terms of position, they have a brightly colored patch. Well, in this case, across their arm, in one of three primary colors, which designates which department they're with. Okay, so you've got color-coded uniforms... 
and our lead characters are the commander, the doctor, and the scientist. Exactly. I I suppose I can follow that. It's it's innovative, but oh, I can absolutely, follow that. yeah. We we can we can follow this. Uh, oh, and and don't forget, they carry around with them communication devices, so that anyone who's not currently in the room can still talk with our main characters if they need to for story reasons. And there is a surprisingly liberal availability of space handguns if if shootouts are required later those were a, both a really cool bit of design uh from sylvia anderson and her team the the weapons do kind of look like staple guns it really does <laughs> but they acknowledge the fact that you don't need a barreled weapon necessarily it just kind of wraps around your fist and it's got three different emitters on the front of it. You kind of point your fist at something and, and uh, squeeze it to shoot. That's pretty cool. It, it, the staple gun, but yeah, it's also very much brass knuckles. Like, I'm just imagining, like, like click, click, the batteries run out. And you just run up and you punch a guy with ones. That's yeah. going to be still effective. I, I would agree. And you mentioned Apple Store before. Those little communicators that they carry... That really was kind of iPhone version negative 10, wasn't it? Because there are these little boxes with kind of an antenna coming out one end. And they had, they were the communicators in that, and they had a little television screen in the end of it. And you could communicate with other people. You point them at the doors and click them to get the doors to open. I think they may have been remote controls for other things around alpha as well i'm pretty sure we they, see at least one person dim the lights with one yeah they really were these all-purpose well smartphones it's yeah, brilliant they were actually pretty brilliant and uh i believe those could were those the things or was it just in general that uh the the female voiced computer could track if you were in the building i think uh, you know i don't know but i i don't know if they ever said, but it makes sense to me that those would be kind of the, the ID cards. They did have people's names and numbers and pictures on the side of each communicator. So you always know whose is, wh is which. Oh, that's nice. I do like that. They are, they are personalized in that sense. Although there wasn't, like, there wasn't a lot of personalization in terms of color scheme on a, most anything in this show. Right. And there is, there is computer, which is just called computer. Doesn't even get a definite article, just computer. And computer, you're right, in the pilot, computer spoke and oh. would tell you things. It, it, her voice pops up in a couple of other episodes. It was inconsistent. Yeah, there are other episodes in which there's one guy on the bridge and his job appears to be to, to present questions to the computer and then tie off, uh, tear off little pieces of cash register tape that the computer prints its answers on and read them to the commander. That was this guy's job. He was good at it, and he cared a lot about computer. But uh, that, that, that's how this guy's job worked, and that's how computer worked in the episodes during which computer didn't talk for whatever reason. Computer was moody, I guess. Oh, yeah. They just, they just, they just wake up for the morning, they go in, they turn it on, they hear, on home. And they're like, ah, oh, dang it, the driver for the audio processor failed again. <laughs> So following the story, you're the, we've, we've kind of described the pilot. We established the moon base. Moon with moon base gets blasted out of Earth orbit. And if they did care about physics, this would be a pretty boring uh, series in that if they happen to be pointing in exactly the right direction when the, uh, the moon engine started, then many, many months or years later, they might 
be within visual range of Mars. That's not how this works, though, is it? No. One of the episodes that we saw was... I'm trying to remember the name of it. Um, they go... They come across a planet with full of uh, aliens with a, a strange hyper-meditation thing that they do. Oh, a collision course. They're Colli- about to crash into this planet, and there's nothing they can do about it. Collision course. In Collision Course, they stay. They say they're going to be within range of the planet for four days, and, and this is another instance of me do like grabbing a piece of scratch paper, and quickly trying to do a bunch of math because it's bugging me so much. Uh, anyone who's listened to our Columbo episode will know this same sort of mode I go into when I tried to explain how much paper a guy was implying he was carrying with him in a suitcase <laughs> that one time. The same sort of thing here. So they say that they'd be within range of this planet for four days, and then it would be six months to the next star system. That was the words they used. So I looked up the distance between Earth and Alpha Centauri and calculated, uh, based on the fact that it's 4.367 light years uh, at 100-ish years at modern propulsion. But in order for them to get that far in six months, they'd be going 8.734 times the speed of light. And they would have accelerated to that within the matter of a couple of minutes, hours, days. They're not specific as to out of range of this planet into six months, how fast they're accelerating to that extra speed. But they are, in fact, breaking sea just to be able to make sure that each episode has something new and interesting to interact with. And that's assuming that this first planet we see them encounter is, like, somewhere in our solar system, which is very unlikely for them to to reach Alpha Centauri at that point, within six months after four days of being in range of this other planet. Yeah, yeah. that's, um... Yeah, because if they were already going fast enough to reach another star system in six months, they would not be in range of any planet for very long. Yeah, they, they, so they don't have directional control, but I think they must have throttle. <laughs> I guess, yeah, and pretty good brakes, too. Pretty good brakes? I mean... However that works in space, I can you know, turn the moon around. I guess if you're designed to store nuclear equipment, uh, nuclear uh, stuff, and it hasn't all burned, if it's still, like, burning like an engine to accelerate you, they might have a, a bit of a control rod or just a an open or close a gasket perhaps but you're now starting to talk about things like the guy who put the jato rockets on his chevy sedan <laughs> yeah this is a problem supposedly this is a problem that like this show does not care about that science so it bugs it, me though you have if you're going to enjoy this show in any way you've got to get past that pretty quickly mm-hmm. uh, because they that's not the that's not what the stories they want to tell her about but you're right it is annoying when you at, at least first until you kind of be, uh find yourself able to let go of that and and that same sort of thing is the other issue i had that relates back to the main issue i had about the other show this reminds me of in that sense which is the fact that this is supposed to be people who were were thrown unexpectedly into this rough situation and are going to be burning through their resources to get back but instead, the show's environment just starts looking better as it does well enough to improve its budget. 
Yeah, that is a little weird. This is a show where you cannot count the Ikea trip. (laughs) Because if you start trying to figure out, you started out with 17 glasses, and this guy fell over and broke one in this episode, and this guy fell over and broke three in this episode, you guys only have 13 glasses left. No. Somehow, they get to go to Ikea in the middle, and pick up a bunch more glasses, because by the time the end of the season is there, they have more than 17 glasses to start with. We In one episode, we see, we see someone doing just a coming around and giving very full cups of coffee to everybody. <laughs> and I thought, wait a minute, you need to ration that better. Either tell me this is a special day, or that is not good rationing. And then I thought, they have not cared about that yet. They're not going to care about that now. Move into what they're wanting to talk about. They do give at least a little bit of lip service to there being food production facilities. I gather there are some kind of hydroponics and things that Moon can grow some of its own food. But I never got the impression at the very beginning that it was totally self-sufficient so you're right they would they might be able to survive but they would be rationing stuff however i am not going to fault their obviously flawless logic and intellectual decision to devote as much of their crop production as necessary to the to the production of coffee they do have their priorities they do have their priorities in that sense that is absolutely true So once you kind of learn to let go of the whole science and math thing, you can sort of start to appreciate the fact that they set themselves up to tell the kind of stories that they they really wanted to tell. Now, they're not above a bottle show, and they're not above a Monster of the Week kind of show. The very second episode we saw was was both. It was, I think, a very low-budget show after all the money they spent on the pilot. It was all within Alpha Moon Base, some alien life form or, or energy being takes over one of the, the crewmen, and this person then starts to freeze other Alphans to death. Exactly why and how, I don't know. The f- most fun part of that was me watching the beginning of this and saying, that guy, I... Something about him makes I, he looks kind of like a young Ian McShane, doesn't he? To which the the ever astute Mrs. Darling wife had pointed out that is a young Ian McShane. <laughs> I remember the noise he made there, which was this. Ooh, whoa! <laughs> so yeah, you do get to see a young Ian McShane as a um, a possessed uh, space guy uh, freezing people to death. So if that's your thing, there you are. Ian McShane is. Space Ice Ghost. (laughs) But for the most part, I think that uh, Space 1999 wanted to tell a very different kind of story than most of the science fiction you'd see in TV or even movies. You've had humans traveling through the galaxy, but unlike most stories about humans traveling through space, they're not in a spaceship that they can control. They don't have weapons. It's not a military ship. They don't have a fleet behind them to back them up or get them help in case they get into trouble. They are on their own, and they are almost invariably the smallest and weakest community in the middle of whatever problem they find themselves uh, uh, that week. 
And it's a very different kind of story. And it is it, it turns into a very sociological story and a very psychological story, like you were saying, Ian. It it, it really is about things that TV science fiction hadn't been much about at the time. There's a lot of the show which is is as humans' first interaction of passing through space being a lot of sorry, passing through, don't mind me, bye. As we as we roll through on this this unintended marble with our our uh, our house and our kit cars, because the, the eagles are very kit car. They're these erector like, set style modular ships with this like front end and these hydraulic legs, which they never seem to retract. For a long while, none of the models had retracted legs. Oh, I don't even know if they were ever, were they supposed to be retractable. They specifically show the the struts on them yeah. being the two part hydraulic style. And oh. there's a cutout in the bottom of the little boxes that they're coming out of, which is the exact same template as the feet. So everything about it design-wise oh. says those should retract up in there to be these little boxy fins on the side when it's flying. Wow. And the later models have that. But the earl- the beginning of the show for a while, they never show them retracted. Okay, well, in their defense, these they did use these, and these were the eagles, the, the spacecraft that they had. Mm-hmm. These were also ships that were used to ferry things, if not from Earth, at least from Earth orbit to the moon, before the moon left Earth orbit. There's no real reason to retract them in a vacuum. So why bother? Maybe they're designed to be retractable in case they have to navigate an atmosphere, but they don't bother when they're on the moon or in space. I guess not. Good point. But the, the design of these, you're absolutely right. They are so cool. Mm-hmm. And this is where, even in their live-action things, the Andersons' model-making is just superb, and I don't know that it's ever better than it is in Space 1999. I just love the design of everything. It's very Apollo-inspired, of course, being about the moon in the 70s, but it's also obviously very influenced by 2001 A Space Odyssey, of course, and the eagles are just this great design. You've got engines in the back. You've got uh, a pilot navigation in the front. And this long... Central you, tube. Yeah, the, the, this, uh, this... It's not even a tube. It's just a, uh, a framework, a, a catwalk kind of thing, connecting the two. Like an, a, a, a Mrs. Darling Life described it as kind of a spaceship built with an erector set. And you've got this big space in between where these standardized modular sec- uh, uh, pieces can be put in uh, for cargo, for crew, for scientific instruments, for all kinds of utility things. It's it's a brilliant design. It's kind of a little bit like a Sikorsky Sky Crane sort of thing. It's kind a of. A little yeah. bit like some other vehicles we see in other Anderson productions. Yeah, round rounded end front, four hydraulic uh, legs on the edges, and giant engines on the back with a modular, swappable center area. I think I've seen a version of this painted green. We'll have to talk about it at some other point. Yes. Yes. And, uh, and I had at least one, if not several, models of the Eagles that I built when I was a kid, just because oh. they were such cool spaceships. Oh, you did? Yes. Oh, goodness. The toyetic nature of this all is so awesome. One of my favorite scenes that they did was that they've got this this long shot model of the the base itself with this ring around it and this central thing and it's little like sub areas all connecting off of it 
kind of neuron shaped in some ways if you look at one of those models but it's it's you know long center cords or certain of them but i'm getting off topic they've got this model that they show regularly and they'll show it from different angles depending on what establishing shot they want one of the best moments they did though was showing one of these shots and then panning up to show that this was a model that they had in the office room as they were trying in the, to like plan something out and using the model in the on the set like that i'm just like <laughs> you got me with that one that, that was, was great. brilliant <laughs> because that right there is using the other side of the same physicality and the same wonderful detail about these models that they've got that they don't use in other stuff where you can you can show actually how big this is in scale and everyone thinks that's awesome instead of it ruining the, sh- the shots when you're trying to say that no you're seeing this actually really big thing from a distance this isn't a tiny model that was fun that was a great shot i liked that now, we i appraise it a lot there are a couple of times when the models fall short Yes, there Especially are. Especially some of the moments when they try to motorize them. Their models are absolutely <laughs> fine stationary, and their models work well with the puppeteering they've done in Super Marionation stuff. But when they've got the little tiny motors in, like, a car with a little figurine of an astronaut, and then they try to run it on a little tiny box of, like, gray sand, you watch the wheels just, like, slip a little and, like, putter along and get stuck. It looks a little silly. Yeah, they've got these open-top ATV-type things, the moon buggies, which, for the full-size ones, are, you know, they're cool. They're utilitarian. They look like they they belong. And then occasionally, they'll, for some reason, you'll see a long shot of of a model, and it's just obviously a toy. You're looking for the little key in the back where they wind it up. There was one bit where it like someone's crying out on the radio. It's like, no, come back, you madman, you can't make it. And there's just this little video of this toy struggling through the sand. Yeah, really, I was trying not to lose it because diminishes the drama somewhat. I love, I love so much of the model work, and when it <laughs> fails, though, it completely swaps over to silly in an instant. One of the nice things about this show is that no matter what kind of story they're telling, you get to see all this great model work from the the Andersons. Oh, yeah. And this is this is also a place where, like, I think it's, like, standard issue that every single crew member gets a glass display case because all of the rooms have these, like, interesting tchotchkes in the side. And, like, there's never a space that doesn't look decorated, that doesn't look designed. There is a... A lot of other science fiction, because it's costly to bring things to space, very reasonably has this sparse environment. Yet even with the large block paneling and the modular systems and such, this feels like a place where people live and work because they've got little desk things. They're all in these very organized, neat display cases, but they've got personality of object on display in that sense. And that lends to the physicality of the, of the rest of it because it means that if this person has a chess set and they are holding this communicator with such purpose these both have value and that means that you can relate that they took the time to bring this and they also have this these things exist in that same world more so than if they just waved sci-fi gadgetry at you 
Right. It was a show that had a very lived-in feel to it, even before that was super popular in science fiction. This kind of looked like a place where people had, had lived for a while. It was ridiculously clean and white, but still it had people's things in there. I was a little surprised that not more of that stuff was, wasn't was smashed to pieces when the moon accelerated out of Earth's orbit, or some of this, these glass tchotchkes hadn't been melted down in order to patch the holes that had been created in, in Alpha at various times. But, you know, they were still there, and it, it, it did give it an interesting look. We watched the, the first episode like we usually do, and all these other, but we watched the last episode of season one. We did. And somehow in between season, like the beginning of season one, where they had this one central command desk in the middle of a very open floor plan. You ever, you ever bought a piece of furniture and brought it into the house and said, wow, this looked bigger on the showroom. <laughs> That's very much what we have in terms of the, uh, the main control room at first. Cause everyone else has their little like panels and such outside, but the desk they had in the middle with this, I can't tell if it was supposed to be a monitor or a light, but this like cone thingy that comes off the back and up top. Yeah. It was, I think it was really like built in desk lamps or something. Yeah. It, it looked a lot smaller in right. there. It, they only had the one by the end of the series. They had like seven of those in that same office. And everyone was in like a little like round table cubicles setup going on. I think part of what is happening there is you're on a moon. It's moving through the, uh, the galaxy in between star systems and you can't steer it or control it in any other way. There's not a, really a lot to do. So what do people do? They clean and they move the furniture around to see if they like it better. So, so this is a bunch of people who like had offices out on one of the arms and it's like, well, no, 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 no. Like half of that department got blown up in this episode. That's right. Can I and have their so desk? Everyone, yeah, everyone else, like we sent out a guy to reclaim any desks that were intact and everyone else just didn't want to stand next to the now sealed <laughs> forever airlock. So they brought their desks over to this building and then that one got blown up. And so now we've got all these people and the other people from that one with all of their desks moving more towards the center again. So it's not a, it's not a, a new set of desks. It's just moving around the old ones. I can, I can understand that then, but it means that there's a, that, that, that lived in look, it becomes this, this cluster, but it also means that they look like they are, they're busier and that they've got more stuff than they did at the beginning. You're not seeing that that worn down, we are running out of patch material kind of look that, or or we used a wrong patch on this one because we had to do it quick. This doesn't get... Now, it doesn't get more broken, doesn't get dirtier. It just looks better and better as the season goes on. There's an aspect of it that's missing where I really just want the wabi-sabi space station in that sense. <laughs> I want this, you know imperfect i want this the i want the polish to wear off over time right there's understandable reasons for why it still looks nice and clean that well exactly what you're describing there's nothing else to do but clean <laughs> and move the furniture it makes sense but i want to see it crumble a little more well we do get to see things crumble and get broken in between and apparently they get fixed and polished in between but we do get to see some destruction. Some of it was some of which is real, and some of which is not. Because in between, in the middle of that first season that we watched, after the the pilot where the moon gets blown out of orbit, and after 
Ian McShane freezing people to death. We saw two episodes that were the two of the ones that were most memorable to me because they were really great examples of that weird psychological, new agey kind of um, uh, storytelling. One of them was the collision course that you mentioned. That one involved space de- defenestration, correct? That was the one where the medical bay exploded and the guy went through the window? Yes, that's okay. right. And and for all of the, there's a lot of noise in space and they can use sonar. That was kind of a, a well-shot thing where you, as you follow the, 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 as the camera follows the people out onto the lunar surface, the sound goes away. It's kind of um, not as stark as some, some uh, movies have done that, but it was... It impressed me because it was so much better done than so much else in this TV series. Yeah, that was that was a good bit. And in Collision Course, the reason they were getting blown up was there, as you might infer from the the title of the episode, the moon has gotten close enough to some big planet somewhere that it's going to be pulled in by the planet's gravity and crash into it. And that's of course not good for anybody who lives on the moon. So they're trying to figure out what can they do, and maybe their best bet is to take the eagles, evacuate the moon base, find somewhere to land on the other side of this planet, and hope that the enough of the planet and they survive the impact, because there's really nothing else they can do, nowhere else they can go. But before they get a chance to do this, warships start approaching them from this planet. Earth warships, like the the Hawk attack ships, which apparently are the military counterpart to the Eagles. Again, a really cool miniature design. And then a, a like dreadnought or a Leviathan kind of battleship following the, uh, the 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 Hawks, and they just start blasting the heck out of the moon base, and hundreds die or dozens at least, and huge portions of the base get destroyed and it looks like this is it so they send like the last remaining eagle with a with the the doctor and the commander down to the planet to try to talk to whoever's doing this and they meet a couple i think you just described it like super meditation people these couple of space hippies who talk in very ethereal tones and phrases about the mind and letting go of your fears and the fact that they're so advanced and we can't allow any of you primitive earth humans to come to our planet. You'll contaminate our perfect system. They kind of act like bouncers in some weird way, though. They look at the commander and just say, no, you're not in. And then they look at the doctor and say, you, come on in. That's right. She, uh, they must have seen something in her because she's allowed to come in and they apparently think she's going to be able to learn their ways. And sit, sit in the people-sized display cases. Yeah, their ways apparently involve wearing flowing robes and sitting inside glass boxes, which, you know, the doctor seems pretty good at until she gets distracted by her feelings for the commander and her concern about him. Yeah, there there is kind of a, a back and forth with those two. Hey, hey. And that's kind of interesting, given that um, Martin Landau and Barbara Bain were married, but were separated by the time they started uh, making this TV show. That that's that's interesting. It, it means that they know how to play these characters in some ways. That that I think might have been useful for them to be able to get as much energy out of these characters as they did. 
but that definitely means it must have been a little awkward on the set. You would think so. But you're, you're right about the how they played these characters. As silly as a lot of this sounds, the performances really do sell a lot of it. Um, of course, uh, Martin Landau and Barbara Bain are terrific. Barry Morse as the scientist. A little more one note, but still really good. And um, you know, Alan Tate as you know, um, uh, Nick Tate as Alan, the 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 best pilot and the pilot of Eagle One. Is it a requirement for mo- for like every Eagle pilot to have a mustache? Oh, Alan doesn't have a mustache. Alan doesn't. I no, thought... the controller guy who like uh, acts as air traffic control for the uh, for the uh, um, for the Eagles. He. Uh, he has a mustache. Okay. I think the fact that Alan's got a an Australian accent that's considered a, a virtual mustache. <laughs> okay, that an makes audiological sense. mustache, so he gets a pass. <laughs> makes sense. Wait, there's there's just fun styling there, but yeah, the the characters really do sell it because with all of this physicality and this this environment that we're talking about, that is just the backdrop for these people to then play out these stories within. And they are facing down these situations, and there's not a lot of crossover between what happened on this episode to that episode. But there is a a set of character types that they can put into a situation for them to then have to respond as those types. Right. And in uh, in Collision Course, at least there's a good reason why there's not a lot of um, impact upon future stories. Because, spoiler, as almost always for the IWMP, it turns out that none of the destruction to Moonbase Alpha had really happened. It was all just projected into the commander's mind. Here's what is going to happen if you try to land on our planet and and, uh, and carry out the actions that you have in mind. So it was, and then this, this is, the things you're most afraid of are going to happen to you, and apparently what he's most afraid of is Earth ships coming and destroying Moonbase Alpha. Uh, so, yeah, that was the very psychological, you know, be, your your fears will destroy you sort of thing. The fact that that one was a, it's all in your head, was a little weird, a little bit of a hand wave, but they did a good job and they earned it by the end with the amount that they put him through in that sense. They did. Yeah, he uh, he not only went through a lot as commander of this ship, this uh, space station, this uh, moon base that was being blown apart, but he went through a lot when he went down to talk to these unreceptive, super advanced aliens, too. And and that was the one that ended with them touching the planet and then the planet vanishing, right? No, no, that was not. They just, just chose not to fight, not to land, just pass on by the collision core. The, um... Oh, you know... You know what? We've got I, I this is my mistake. I've got the names mixed up. The one that I we just described with the aliens and the earth ships destroying Alpha that weren't really there, that was War Games. War Games. Collision Course was the first of the weird hippie psychic kind of ones that we saw. Where yeah, that was the one where they were going to crash. And they instead run- they met a psychic crone who told Koenig that it was his, the commander, that it was his destiny to come here and they shouldn't do anything. And he believed her and everybody else thought he was crazy and they had to take action or the moon's going to crash. And instead he 
continued his psychic conversation with this old lady on the planet, and then the moon touched the planet and the planet disappeared. We have expected you for many millions of years. You see, your destiny has always been our destiny. But how can that be possible? It was only a matter of time before we met John Koenig. Our two planets have met in the body of time for the great purpose of mutation. We shall change utterly. And the change will reverberate through the galaxies and universes of eternity. You understandably confuse the one where the commander has to go down to the planet and gets the runaround from people in flowy robes talking vaguely about what the purpose is of the world when they're dealing with an alien planet or the one where the commander has to go down and talk to a person in flowy robes talk vaguely about the meaning of life and their such as they interact with the alien planet. Yeah, absolutely. While they project things into his mind with their super psychic powers. Exactly. So yeah, yeah. no problem. Okay, yeah. I appreciate your understanding there. <laughs> So yeah, that was there was Collision Course, and then there was War Games, which was when Alpha got shot up by uh, by the imaginary spaceships, and then there was Black Sun. Oh my goodness, Black Sun! That was that was a. I mean, the fact that they call the 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 anomaly a Black Sun, and they repeat that a couple of times in the episode, grated on me. Well, Science-wise, but at the same time, they're they're they actually were playing with the science a little more clearly that time than they. Yes yeah. and no, yeah. Well, I mean, I think the it was a black hole, of course, that they were approaching, and I don't think that was a term that was well known at the time. Certainly, you know, I didn't notice this being a weird calling it a black sun didn't seem weird to me when I was a kid, and I don't know, maybe they decided no, let's not have our characters say black hole. Two dozen times over the next 40 minutes, let's call it a black sun. I don't know. Maybe they had their reasons. They might have had their reasons. But that one was interesting because, like, they're trying to deal with, like, what's going to happen when we go through it. And they send an entire team out on a ship just to, like, you six are going to be the only actual survivors. Oh, right. Because they thought, we don't know know what's going to happen when we we get to this. So we're going to send a lifeboat out with at least some people to survive. And it that one got, had a lot of interesting psychology with it because it's a bunch of these characters like preparing for the fact that this is so unknown but so certain that they kind of have to face their mortality. And then a couple of these characters are suddenly told, no, you're not. You have to be the one to leave. And that's a whole other pain. Right. There was enough story packed into that one TV episode. I could have seen that as a feature film in any other context. You look at movies like like Sunshine and other very close and claustrophobic but big in concept um, science fiction stories. Black Sun in uh, Space 1999 was, was terrific. Oh, yeah. And, and spoiler as we usually do. The fact that then when they hit the actual epicenter, they they reach the black sun. Yeah, they cross the event horizon. And it, they didn't use any of these terms. No, it then goes nuts. Yes. Because suddenly it's like everyone's in age makeup. 
and they're seeing each other's thoughts and they're like, what in the world was going on there? I do like the fact that they at least gave a nod to the fact that just getting close enough to a black hole would destroy you. They didn't talk about tidal forces and spaghettification and things, but they at least put something in place story-wise why they could possibly survive this anyway. And it was this advanced force field that was turning the gravitational waves of the black sun against itself to cause them to protect Alpha. So that part was cool. So they did survive the trip quote-unquote, into the black hole. And then, as you say, things got weird. They, they kind of, like, have everyone slowly turning into, like, psychic soup for a bit, where, like, time is no longer stable and people are rapidly aging and they're talking to each other through their minds. And then we kind of see the characters, like, will themselves back into individuality to some extent. Right. This and- is after their psychic conversation with God. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then they have this psychic conversation with God and God's like, I think, but it's on a time frame that is so slow you don't hear. Right. Like, so God is a woman who has a thought maybe once every thousand years. I've met people like that. A thought every thousand years. <laughs> Never thought to call them God, but hey. And once again, the psychicness and mystical things uh, are represented with I think bead curtains shot out of focus with shimmery lighting, and it's really weirdly effective. I kind of like it. And a, and a wind chime somewhere on the porch off to the side. Right. So that's, in my mind, that's kind of the, the symbol for weird mystical psychic stuff because of Space 1999. But it, it, that, that one was pretty, pretty fun and pretty effective. And in the, the ending mystery of the fact that the, the ship with six people who was going off in a straight line away, somehow, a couple of days later, arrives back at Alpha, and everyone is confused. Because here's all of Alpha just saying, we survived. My goodness. Oh my goodness, we just sent six of our best people away on a ship in a completely straight line away from us. We'll never see them again. Now we have to be sad about that. And then it's like a couple days later, we're getting a reading. Wait a minute, it's them. How? Why did you turn? How did you come back? We didn't. We just kept driving. How are we here now? And not only that, but going through the black hole flung the moon to, I don't know if they said the other side of the universe or what, but it was like, obviously, you know, we're, we're no, well, no, absolutely nowhere near Earth anymore. I kind of, almost, I remembered it from when I was a kid that it like, sent them to a, another parallel universe or something, but that I must have confused it with some of the story because they said it was like to the other side of the universe or the other, or the other side of the galaxy, I forget which. But still, how did the, the eagle with the, the, the six lifeboat occupants get back? They kind of in the end imply that the god that they talked to was the reason, but at the same time, they left it with an open question at the end, and that was fun. Yeah, it was a science fiction series that was happy to kind of leave a story with, I guess, God did it. Eh? Who knows? But, yeah, there's a... This is the sort of story they were telling. It's a different style. It's a different set of things it wants to talk about. But it's about the, the people in the end. It's about the people and how they relate to where they are, who they are, 
and what they experience. It is about how the the people in the, this will deal with the stresses, will deal with the social conflicts they are suddenly a part of, will deal with the the problems that they face. And it doesn't have to be too bogged down with the minutia of physically surviving. It wants to be able to talk about the story of how they survive without bothering with the specifics of how they survive. If yeah. You see what I mean? I do. I, I think it's very short on the, the stresses and the, the sociological changes among this tiny community of humans that are lost to everyone else. There could have been a lot more of that. And I could see somebody doing that today. It, it, the, everything about alpha seemed unbelievably functional physically and psychologically. So the only conflicts they were dealing with were the external conflicts of these planets. They happened to get close to every week, which, which led to some of these really interesting stories, but they always started from a, we don't know where we're going to end up when we're looking for a planet to colonize, but we're doing okay here on our moon base. They become the, the resettable litmus test of different human reactions that can then be applied to each of the, the scenarios that they run into in space to show here's how a different subset of people we've selected out trope-ish in that sense. They're each types of people with types of personalities. And here's how they would theoretically respond to a this or a that. That's true. You almost had them. You could almost see them checking the boxes when they encountered some new conflict from from outside forces. You know, how's the commander going to react? How's the scientist going to react? How's the doctor going to react? How's Alan going to react? How's Sandra going to react? Mm-hmm. And that means that they can decide to follow one of those for a story if they wanted to do it one character. They can have everyone talking in a room if they wanted to do all of them. And that means that next episode they'll reset back to that empty check. Uh, that empty box to check off how they're going to respond to this different problem each time. Yeah. So I guess they, they gave themselves those tools with which to explore these stories that they, they came up with. And uh, then the stories were really embodied in the planet or the culture that they encountered. And the people on Alpha are a way to investigate that. Mm hmm. So yeah, it, it 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 uses the setup of the people and their situation to then be able to tell these stories, but not because those stories are part of the setup story in that sense. The setup story is just literally the vehicle to get them there. The moon. Right. As the vehicle to get them there. But it's definitely a good show and interesting show in that sense. And I think I'm I'm starting to lead into our our ending questions then. I think you are. I think it's time. Uh, now that I've, I've had you watch uh, several episodes from the first season of Space 1999. We didn't, we didn't touch season two, so there's more no, of it didn't. for us to take a look at. So anything that I'm looking at, or anything that we're discussing here at the end is based on purely how season one was structured and talked right. about. Yep. So based on that, uh, our first question is always a binge or no binge. What do you think, Ian? I'm going to say binge. 
especially if you're a fan of the show we don't talk about, binge. This is good. This is interesting. This is more of what you like in that sense, but with a a, a slightly different styling to it, a little bit more of that, that you know psychology litmus test that we were describing there. It does that, it does it well, and it's got that flavor that you might like in terms of uh, uh, a, a journeying space-wise. Oh, this is interesting. As much as I remember loving this show when I was a kid, uh, I am. I think I've got to say no binge. Oh my goodness. Why maybe not? it's because it, it. this is maybe more than any other show that we've watched this did not live up to my memories of it. The plots and the characterizations and the st- everything held together better in my memory and in my you know, 10-year-old experience than it did on rewatching this as, a, as an adult. So maybe it's just that disappointment, but just, there's so much that does not hold up. There's so much similarity story after story like we were saying you know we are threatened by a planet full of advanced psychic people in robes oh what what are we going to do this time if what we have talked about makes it sound interesting i'd say go ahead and watch the pilot and watch collision course and all of these are available on tubi by the way the uh, streaming service and if you like those then yeah, go ahead and binge. I don't think it's going to grab most people, so I can't really say, I can't really encourage people to binge. There are better things to do with your time. I can I can understand that. And I'm really surprised that's something I loved so much. I'm saying no binge, and you're saying binge. I'm, I'm surprised as well. This is the sort of uh, unexpected interaction. To, to the... The point of the fact that there's that similarity means that I'm thinking the binging is just going to turn it into one uniform mush of a show that someone would enjoy. <laughs> but that's because you'll watch all of it till they blend together right. for you. But definitely, if you're if you're wanting them to be telling different stories, it's not gonna. And I will agree with that completely. Mm-hmm. Well, our second question then is: revive, reboot, or rest in peace? You take it first on this one. Oh, gosh. I don't know. It's funny. You would think that if I said no binge, then I'd say rest in peace. Just let it leave it alone. Don't do anything. But there are... I almost want to say reboot, but I there are so many scientific and logical flaws in the whole setup that I have trouble thinking of a way you could really reboot it and have it taken seriously. I'm afraid that trying to reboot this would be like one of the movies that takes an old TV show and creates a parody of it. Um, and I wouldn't want that. So it's funny, I hadn't really thought about this question, even though I, I should have known it was coming up. Revive? You know, Revive would be interesting. Oh. If this is supposed to have taken place in... 1999. Oh, September 13th, 1999, by the way, as they tell you during the opening credits. Between this and UFO, the Andersons really want you to know when something's taking place. Oh, you um, UFO, though. I mean, it's definitely got similarities to that. Back oh, yeah. Up a moment. This, this show had similarities to that in terms of its uh, 
I it, it, this was this was originally pitched as a spin-off, right? So this is almost a yeah. It, this is almost a a revive of UFO that didn't stick stay connected to UFO, and now we're trying to decide if we want to revive the revival. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, the uh, UFO. They made the one season of of Anderson's UFO, and they were starting to work on a second season, but people liked the Moonbase episodes of UFO the best. So they started working towards a second season of UFO that was mostly about what's happening on the moon base. And they never got it made as a season of UFO. So that turned into the new show, Space 1999. So if that happened, if, if Space 1999 happened, of course, in 1999, how about revive a sequel series set in 2020 or oh. or 2019 space 2019 the the descendants of the 300 some people cast adrift on moon base alpha still out there oh that could be fun that could be really fun with the the story having had to like We'd see a little bit of that wear and tear by that point. We'd see them building their own miniature society that's re that's restructuring through the isolation, and they could still have that that interaction story, but it would be a little bit more of a what they're picking up from each place they're going instead of just how they're reacting. I could see that being really cool. Yeah, and you know, I guess it's a bit much to say descendants, unless we were setting it into the future. Because in 2019, you know, that's that's only 20 years later. The 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 relatively young men and women who were the the leaders and the um, the engineers of of Moonbase Alpha would be older, but they most of them would still be around. But they, we'd have a generation of teenagers. You could you could say it a little farther. Do it 2039 or 49, if you wanted to to have a little bit more of more time in between and give a little bit of space for yeah yeah set it now and then set it 20 to 25 years out from us just as the series was 20 to 25 years out from when it was made yeah exactly so if you know that i of all three revive reboot or rest in peace what, what i would find most interesting would be revive what happened in the original series was canon and now we're seeing what happens sometime in the future that is very interesting. I'm going to say reboot. Yeah? I want to see a mini series reboot. I want to see it taken a little bit a little bit the way Netflix did their reboot of Lost in Space. Take oh. the original premise and then s- scrub the the story it was originally telling down and rebuild off the skeleton as you see fit. Cuz I would really love to see a mini series give us seven episodes or something where we start with the moon base and give explanations as to, you know, we were putting it on the the light side for observation, which is why when it went off, it pushed it away from the planet. They can do a little bit of twist there. They just have to take the skeleton of the moon base has nuclear incident, which steals the, the moon as its new satellite away into space. How do you get it far enough into space to be interesting without ignoring physics? 
by having something else be what triggered the event. Oh, so you get to throw a little interstellar in there where there's like an alien wormhole that is causing the problem in the first place. Exactly. Bypass the, the physics problems there by taking extra control away. Don't just make this a hurling, hurtling ball. Make this a hurtling ball going towards a target. And ah. then we don't know what the target was. You can have a little bit more of the thing not designed for travel is falling apart between each of the episodes. Show more of that than they were doing. And you can have the the psychic aspect and the the who are we and where we are, are we in the universe part grow over the course of the episodes. So it'll start out caring about the science in a way the first show didn't. And towards the end of the series, it can let the science drop because it's facing down the barrel of the bigger questions it is being physically drawn towards by the end. Let our medical doctor, who flip-flopped as to how much she was here for the science and uncertain about where we are in all of this, between episodes in the original show, because how she'd respond in the litmus test would change based on the situation. Have her get more like at peace with the, this is part of something grander as the series goes on. So she can be this emissary of that concept for us. Have it be people who are focusing on trying to do that cleaning and trying to keep things repaired. And because it's the only thing that's keeping them together as they deal with this and how do they respond to that? But let us see it evolve. Let us see it go. I'm thinking the miniseries because it gives a definitive ending point. But it lets you take this set of questions this poses and get to ask them again with a structured uh, you know, format to it that this resetting the clock every time didn't build up to the two in the same way. I like that. That I would watch that. That is, that goes somewhere. I like it. There, they, both of us have very different takes on this, but both of us are like, there's more here that can be done. I'm loving that, and that's a sign of of a, of a show with a lot of interesting ideas and a lot of of good qualities to it. If it's getting us that interested in either a reboot or a, a revival, mm-hmm. but yeah, th- this is this is not done. There's a, there's options here, no matter what. And, and there's an entire second season we ha- uh, that I at least haven't taken a look at. I don't know from you. I, you've not told me anything what you think of that, but we don't have to go into that now. No, I don't think we can go into that now, but, uh, but you know, it's, it's available, so we'll see. Mm-hmm. But I think that does it for this episode of the IWMP. Uh, thanks, as always, for joining us. Thanks, Ian, for putting up with uh, my TV from my youth. And for enjoying it, apparently more than I did, which is... I I enjoyed that a lot. If you still have any of those models of an eagle, I might take a look at it. Oh, I wish I did. I'm I'm almost positive I don't, but if I do, I know what box in the basement they must be in. Anyone online, if you've got one of those, send us pictures. I want to see the the models you might still have. Oh, that was great. And the the central utility uh, um, bay was removable, so you could have just the framework. It was great. That's awesome. So, um, yeah, we'll be back in a few weeks with, um, with some more uh, tales of media from the 20th century. Uh, in the meantime, Ian, where can people find you? I can be found on Twitter at, at itemcrafting. 
I can be found on YouTube as Item Crafting or on Twitch as Item Crafting Live. That's a lot of item crafting. Yes. And uh, you can find me at by Matthew Porter on Twitter. You can also find me at MatthewFPorter.com, two T's in Matthew. You can find the show on Discord and on Patreon. That's right. Uh, you go to our website, immproject.com. You'll find all of our back episodes. You'll find a link to our Patreon. You'll find uh, show notes and uh, more about us and anything else you might want to find out. Yeah, and and we... you can also find the show on Twitter at immpcast.com. We'd love no, to. No, not .com, just immpcast. Yeah. Well, we'd love to hear from you, yeah. Tell us about the shows you saw. Tell us if you if you liked the uh, the ideas for reboots and revivals we had, or if you have your own twist on it. We'd love to hear from you about that sort of thing. Always, always. So we will be back uh, before long. And in the meantime, go find something new to watch.